Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. Today, we have three incredibly special guests. Our instructors this year for the Writers of the Future workshop, Tim Powers, Dave Farland, and Orson Scott Card. They just finished the workshop, and I asked them to stay behind for a few minutes just to give a little overview of what happened in the last week worth of the workshop. Um, I'm Dave Wolverton. I'm here with Orson Scott Card and Tim Powers, and we just got done teaching the workshop for the writers that were the winners for uh, for Volume 35 of the L. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future contest. This is an annual event that uh, that goes on before the awards ceremony. I've uh, been doing it now for 35 years. The uh, the workshop that we taught is a little bit unusual in that the writers that we have have already sort of demonstrated that they're writing publishable fiction and that they have the possibility of having careers. And so it's unlike other writing workshops in that we're not teaching the basics of this is what a story, this is how it is, this is how you parse a sentence, here's the beginning and middles and ends. Uh, we talk uh, a bit more in this workshop about um, building a career and how you go about that. L. Ron Hubbard put together a number of essays that were used by Algis Budras and L. Ron Hubbard with the very first volume. And those essays talk about things like, uh, how, do you, how do you interview a person? How do you uh, get ideas for stories? Once you have an idea for story, um, how do you put it together into a story format and get it written quickly? and these types of things. So this is what we're focusing on for this, uh, for this week and um, the kind of thing that we've been doing for 35 years now. I'm Tim Powers, uh, also an instructor at the workshop. And I've been uh, instructor and judge um, since I think uh, 1987. So I've seen a whole lot of the winners over the years, and it's been long enough now that we've been able to look back and assess how successful the program is. And um, fortunately, it proves to have been very successful of any year. I think it's uh, accurate to say that at least 50% of the winners of that time have gone on at least to publish professionally and very often to um, establish solid careers. So obviously the program works. Um, and I think one of the big virtues of it is that um, Hubbard set it up so that only unpublished people could participate, could enter. Um, I'm sure f fiction writing, science fiction writing has always been a difficult arena to fight your way into. And so this provides real talented writers with, um, at the very least, uh, a shortcut, an easy way in, um, where otherwise they might have had to spend years uh, at trial and error and finding out what does and does not work and possibly simply giving up. Um, so it has been fun to participate in this, and then I always want to um, unreasonably take credit for all their subsequent successes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm Orson Scott Card. I was 
uh, I took part in uh, two of the early workshops, and then I've been a judge off and on over the years since then, but not, I have not taken part in the workshops except as a visiting lecturer doing about a half hour or an hour, uh, and then not regularly. So all of this evolution uh, that, that uh, Tim and Dave have seen, uh, I came in, it's like, you know, a grandchild that you see once <laughs> as a baby and then again at age five, <laughs> and you just go, oh, wow, uh, not the same human at all. Uh, though I will say that, that some things are a constant. Uh, you were talking about how these, the students have prepared themselves and that this is sort of an easier way in, but I suspect not. I mean, we've, we, as we met them uh, the other night uh, for the first time, some of them talked about this being their, what, 40? One guy, had, it was his 40th submission to the contest where he finally made it into the book and into the workshop. And uh, others had similar, though not quite so uh, uh, lengthy, not quite so epic a story. <laughs> um, the difference between the Writers of the Future contest, I, I don't think of it as an easy way in at all. It's, a, it's got a very high standard. Uh, there are people who get published in the magazines who aren't good enough for this contest. That's true. And uh, because everybody, everybody who's beginning, who knows anything, knows to uh, submit their stories to Writers of the Future. I tell my students that. I say, if, you are writing, if you're writing science fiction or fantasy, and you start out with a short story or you have excerpted a, a short story from your novel, uh, there's only one place to send it first, and that's Writers of the Future. And the reason is first, because Writers of the Future responds within three months. Uh, there's a contest every quarter so that you don't wait for a year and a half for it to move around on the editor's desk until it finally catches his eye. Uh, it's gonna be read, it's gonna be read soon, and it's going to be responded to. Plus, you're going to, you're going to get some feedback. It's not going to be uh, an elaborate critique of your story, I don't think. I don't think anybody has time for that. But, but uh, it's going to be, if you're, if you're on the right track, you'll get an honorable mention. Or a, I just heard about it this time, a silver honorable mention. I didn't know those existed. I'm waiting for the gold and platinum uh, <laughs> later. But, uh, but you'll get some feedback, some positive response if you're on the right track. But the main reason you submit to Writers of the Future is because if you make it into the book, your career has begun. Uh, as soon as you have that credential, that you're in Writers of the Future Volume X, uh, editors at, at book publishing houses will give your submission package, your query letter, your manuscript a much closer look. They, they will... I don't want to say closer. They're, they're responsible humans. They look closely at everything. What it is is they'll enter your manuscript with hope. Uh, Writers of the Future gives them hope because they'll know that you have met the professional standard uh, of a first-rate short fiction publication. And as the magazines die, uh, they fade from, I think Asimov's had a, more than 100,000 circulation about 10 years ago, and now I don't know what the numbers are, but it's way less than that. And that was the best, uh, and, and analog was way down. Uh, Writers of the Future is now by far the best short story market in science fiction and fantasy because this is a book that hits the lists and people buy it to read it. Uh, they pay attention to what's to the stories that are in it. So uh, this is this is the launch of a career. And even if they decide that they want to be hobbyists after all, it ain't because they weren't invited to the party. All right. And. Um... <laughs> 
the the big advantage um, for a beginning unknown writer, yeah, it's not that getting into Writers of the Future book is easy. The big advantage is that you're not in competition with the name writers, uh, the the previously established writers. Um, uh, certainly, the standards inevitably must be very high for Writers of the Future, simply because of the enormous volume of submissions. Um, and so it does, there is a distillation that takes place, but everybody at least starts on an equal, which is to say unknown footing. Yeah. Now, when, when someone does enter Writers of the Future, we have, um, uh, of course, the finalists and our winners that you hear about, but there are uh, thousands of entries uh, each quarter now. And when we get those entries, you know, one of the things that I always look at is very often I'll see stories and I'll go, um, there's something good about this story. I, I want to congratulate the author or give them some sort of kudos. And so we have a number of different uh, uh, awards that they can receive. And of course, that the, at the lowest level is honorable mention. And I, I don't which want to say... Which is still better than nothing. Which is still yeah, better than yeah. nothing, yeah. And the honorable mention basically uh, can mean a couple of different things. Sometimes I'll see a story and I'll think, that's a really cool idea. Um, or this is a great opening, but then it kind of dies on page seven or something. And I want to say, you, you, you got my attention, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and so there's that honorable mention. But at the end of any given quarter, I have a list of stories that um, uh, I'm considering as finalists. Right now, I've got 25 finalists, and I've got to narrow it down to eight. And some of those stories, I might find one or two things wrong with that just maybe needs a little tiny bit of work. And those very often will be honorable mentions, too. Silver honorable mentions are stories that... Uh, uh, are pretty much publishable just as they are. Very often, um, as Tim mentioned, uh, the stories that didn't win in Writers of the Future will go on to be published in other magazines. And I see my silver honorable mention stories all the time being published in other magazines. Um, and then, of course, there's beyond that, we have the level of semi-finalist. A semi-finalist story is one that came very, very close to being a finalist, and I will offer a critique on that, uh, saying, this is what I think you need to do. And in some cases, you know, um, one, one young man turned in a piece, and I said, you know, send this to Analog. Uh, <laughs> and it won story of the year at Analog uh, after, after we did it. Um, and of course, uh, it, it would break your heart to have to actually name this person. <laughs> uh, it was Brad Torgerson. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Believable, yes. Uh, but yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, there are times when uh, uh, I'll get a story. Actually, I think that that particular story was actually a finalist. And he said, why didn't this make it? And I said, this was just the wrong market for it. This was a perfectly fine story and... and uh, I couldn't quite believe that we didn't give it a, a <laughs> but a you, have to, choose, you have to choose yeah. one, you know. Yeah, you have yeah. to choose one. And and what it comes down to in, in writers of the future, I think very often I get stories that are solidly written and yet we also have that level of of stylistic um uh expertise. 
that comes into it. That there's there's a lot of wordplay and things like that, and I think the judges tend to look at the story in uh, different levels. You know, is this a good solid story? Uh, yep. And uh, then on the level of how beautifully written is it? Um, they're going to look at the metaphors and the similes and the poetic diction and this type of thing, and that might score a few extra points. And so sometimes a story that will do well in another market won't necessarily do great in the contest. Um, but in any case, uh, we have those levels, and then of course we have our winners. We're first, second, and third place, and each year we're going to choose one of our first place stories will end up being the grand prize winner for the year and, uh, and get the $5,000 bonus check. So we try, to, uh, we try to really do as much as we can to help people out. And I think every quarter I feel this sinking sense that I wish I could do more, you know, that I could, that I could uh, give another 200 critiques or something like that. But there just are not enough hours in the day to do everything that you'd like to do. But you, when you talk about uh, the the judges of the final contest. I mean, you have already chosen the quarterly winners, mm -hmm. and then basically uh, the panel of judges are choosing among those four winners, right? For the, yeah, the, for the, the eight, eight winners, yes. Oh, uh -huh. Eight winners for the yeah. story of the year. And, oh, uh, yeah, for the, for the, for the, story, for the, for the story of the year, yeah. I have nothing to do with them. the illustrators. I love illustrators, but, yeah. but uh, we, we, we aren't talking to them. They don't care about us. No. Uh, but... but uh, when you talk about, you know, there, there's some more attention to language and et cetera, it sounds like we are encouraging people to write fancier in order to win. Ha. And I just want to say, I'm only one of the judges, and I'm sure I'm outvoted every time, but uh, I loathe anything that says, see me right, see me right, aren't I clever? Yeah, and so I, that I know will what you mean. never yeah. be my choice. I will always cast a vote for one that is a plain tale, plainly told, mm -hmm. uh, I think without that is, any tricks. I think that's uh, the prevailing opinion, unstated, but I think probably all the judges feel that way. Um, and I've always been impressed with the breadth of um, subcategories of science fiction fantasy that uh, the contest embraces. It goes from there might be very hard technical science fiction to the more psychological sorts of things to uh, fantasy to horror. Um, always, I think we're keeping in mind... Um, the readership, who are they? Um, and it's always seemed to me that we're aiming at readership sort of um, middle school and up in age, all the way to uh, uh, extreme old age. Um, my age, ah, oh, okay. There you go, my age even, yes. Uh, but uh, one of the values that I think leads to what Scott was talking about is the uh, variety of the judges. And um, I know when I first uh, was asked by Algis Budras to be a judge, I was uh, very impressed by who the other judges were. Over the years, the judges for this contest have included Jack Williamson, C.L. Moore, Roger Zelazny, Frank Herbert, Anne McCaffrey, good God. Uh, him too. I, <laughs> and, and Orson Scott Card and Dave Wolverton. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's always a group of people who 
really do know, both as discerning readers and as writers themselves, what's good. Uh, where I don't think a panel of academic literary specialists could uh, do nearly as well at choosing what readers will turn out actually to like. Yeah. Now, what because is, because yeah. this is re reader-driven in the sense right. that, that if readers don't want this book, the book doesn't succeed. It doesn't do any good and for why anybody. Why did we bother in that and case? So, so it's a book that is meant to be read by the person who buys it. This isn't a gift book. This is a selfish, entertainment-hungry reader's purchase right. for himself. Right. One of the things that uh, that I do when I'm looking at the at the stories, you know, as potential finalists, is um, I've always loved the idea of of trying to capture the the breadth and the depth of what is science fiction and fantasy and horror. Um, there's nothing that's excluded uh, in that. I don't say oh gosh, I don't like contemporary fantasy, okay? And so I'm not going to choose one of those. If I get a good story about a werewolf detective in the modern day, um, it, it's a good story. And that's really all that I judge it on. Um, I'm always looking for comedy. I'm always looking for off-world science fiction. I'm always looking for just about everything. And... Um, and one of the problems that I sometimes have is I'll get stories that are too similar. I've had, I've had quarters where, I had one quarter, for example, uh, where I got six really good ghost stories. And I thought, I can't turn in eight ghost stories <laughs> to the judges, uh, or they would wonder if I had gone insane. Um, Ghosts so I, of the future, yeah. So I, chose, <laughs> so I chose the best ghost story that I could. It won first place, you know. Uh, but that meant that these second and third place ghost stories uh, didn't didn't go to the judges. So I I try to to get that depth and breadth, and then that is what makes judging so difficult. Because if I'm giving you apples, oranges, pears, bananas, and pomegranates, um, I don't know if you're going to choose the pomegranates or what. You know, uh, as far as the judges and, go, and we can't. You know, we have our own biases. Yes. I want you to yeah. know yes. the only circumstance in which I will ever read a zombie story or a vampire story is if it's one of the finalists I'm judging in Writers of the Future because <laughs> uh -huh. I I just I, I repel those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I cannot bear to read two pages into one. And so, uh, sorry, this means that I, no, I have not in fact read Twilight. Uh, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because I knew it was a vampire story going in and there was just no way. It cannot hold my attention. Mm -hmm. But uh, as, mm -hmm. as a judge of a contest, I trust the original judge. I know that if, uh, if Dave, or previously Algis mm -hmm. Budras, had, uh, has chosen this as a quarterly uh, uh, winner, that it has merit beyond its subject matter. And that means that, that I'm going to give it a fair read, which is an effort of will in some of these categories. Yes, and I think uh, that's one of the advantages of having so many judges. Because yes, each of us has our own uh, iron-bound prejudices. Yeah. Um, mine will be different from yours. I'm not crazy about imaginary worlds with swords and wizards. Um, and so I approach stories like that with a 
perceptible speed bump in the way. We'll try not to tell George Martin about your feelings here. Right? I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't. <laughs> uh, but, um, and and I, I have a instinctive speed bump against stories told in the present tense. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Though one of the ones this quarter was, and um, I forced myself to get over that speed bump because it had been selected. Dave thought it was worth reading. Uh, and in fact, it was one of my uh, final favorites. I don't remember if I voted it number one or number two, but uh, in spite of my prejudice, uh, I, I was able to see that it was real good. And all of us will have those prejudices, which is why it's a good thing to have quite a broad spectrum of judges so that one, one person's bad attitude is not going to prevail uh, without, without contest. I think all of the judges have the integrity to give a fair shake to every story that, that comes along. And it's worth remembering one kind of law, I think, of, of fiction writing, which is a good enough story can transcend, can overcome any barriers in the actual yeah, writing. Yeah, yeah. So because, you know, I... Th Such you, as you, this you, one in the present tense, right, this I, one, this time. I, I liked it. Uh, it was, I think, my second choice uh, yeah, yeah. this time. Um, and, not, and it wasn't second because it was in present tense. The first right. place was first place because it was simply, unarguably, without question, the best. I think I went uh, with the same first place. It was yeah. kind of overwhelming. Yeah, it was, <laughs> and and uh, and so you know, we. I would have been content to have a, a present tense story win, if it's the best of the four that we're choosing from. Mm -hmm. But uh, let it be said that if the story is strong enough then you can make mistakes. You can do things mm -hmm. that trigger people's prejudices yeah. uh, and, and annoy people. Present tense is simply annoying. It's not a natural narrative voice for English. But uh, nevertheless, uh, if the story is strong, and I, by story I don't mean the manuscript, the writing, the words that you choose. I mean the actual plain tale, what happens and why, which can be told in any language. That's the translatable part of the story, yeah, yeah, yeah. the part that can be rendered in another language. Is the is the pure tale? That's very good, and it's the one that can be adapted into other media. You can turn it into an epic poem, and as long as the same things happen, it's the same story. Uh, I have to say epic poem because I'm sick of everybody saying, "Oh, that was so good, it should be made into a movie." And I'm going, "No, no, <laughs> it, it's it's so good, it should be made into an epic poem." Shut up. Homer's lasted way longer than any movie ever. Uh, good point. Good point. <laughs> but but uh, if you have a story that you believe in and care about and you're afraid you don't have the skills, don't do what Edgar Rice Burroughs did when he started out and try to write it in your most florid prose. Uh, it makes Tarzan almost unreadable to a grown-up. Twelve-year-olds can still read it, but, but it's really hard to slog through the mud of Edgar Rice Burroughs's overwrought attempts at purple prose. Uh, don't, try to, don't try to write your way into victory. Just tell the story. And if the story's good, Whatever your natural language is, chances are your best style is just writing as if you were talk, telling the story to a friend. Yeah, I've always, I've always figured the best style is the one you're least aware of using. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the old analogy of the story should be a clear pane of glass through which we can see out on the lawn all the events happening. You don't want fancy etching and stained glass getting in the way. Exactly, yeah.
Though there are critics who only look at the etching on the stained yes, glass and, and, yeah. and the color and everything. <laughs> and, they and, see those, and they don't care what goes on. No, the, in fact, to them, those figures out on the lawn are simply metaphors. Yeah, exactly. And, and I remember when I, I, uh, I was trying to get a terminal degree. So I entered a creative writing program at a university and um, with, the, with the idea of getting a, a, an MFA or a, I can't remember if it was a doctor. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, what mattered was I remember trying as a, an old pro by then. You know, I was well into my late 30s. I'd already published several, uh, many books by then. And, uh, and I remember walking with them to a confab of just the grad students um, and one of the guys, the, the one who thought of himself as the leading talent, the light of everyone else's life, uh, there's always one in every gra graduate program, uh, started going on about how, well, it doesn't really matter what the story's about. Mm -hmm. It's you just got to find a style. You got to find your style. And until you find your style, who cares what the story is? You got to get that style. And I'm just thinking, I'm sure Man. he's prospered. Well, I, he's probably teaching creative writing somewhere, saying the same thing to his students. Um, and, and thereby breaking their fingers before they start trying to type their way into fame and fortune. Uh, because the audience does care about the story. They always care about the story. Even people who are lionized as being liter literary successes. I think of Ann Tyler or Richard Russo, two of the best writers I've ever read, or at least early Richard Russo. He's become more academic mm -hmm. uh, later in his career, which was a disappointment to me. Or John Irving, who, uh, especially early on, uh, just a great storyteller. And, and all of the little Phillips and curly cues of, of literary writing are present, but they, they all know what a story is and therefore they can identify when they have one. And sometimes they're wrong, but mm -hmm. not always. <laughs> they're, they're often right that they found a story. Another advantage occurs to me of um, Dave and our broad panel of judges, which uh, include Larry Niven, um, Mike Resnick, et cetera, um, Silverberg, although he's now an emeritus judge, uh, it frees the uh, anthology, it frees our selection of stories from being strictly trends of 2019. Uh, any decade, especially it's noticeable in science fiction, has had its pet obsessions, uh, which it seems to dwell on for about five years, and then that becomes quaint. Uh, certainly in 1969-1970, our field was obsessed with student unrest and the Vietnam War. And those stories look quaint now. Um, I think uh, current magazines um, show, show signs of being uh, obsessed with the default attitudes and philosophies of 2019. And I think they're going to look quaint in and five or 10 years. Everybody's hero, no matter what era they live in, is a social justice warrior. So yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. But with our broad, with Dave's filter and our broad panel of judges, uh, I think we have a much bigger uh, chronological footprint, philosophical footprint, um, which would be important for any fiction. But I think especially when you're doing, dealing with science fiction and fantasy, which is supposed to have a galactic uh, perspective. Um, it, it's not only valuable, but really essential to uh, 
transcend uh, the the focus of um, you know, uh, spring 2019. Well, one of the best things about science fiction is that the entire history of science fiction is still alive and in print. Yeah. You can yeah. still buy from the shelf books from the, quote, golden age, the, uh, the space opera era, mm -hmm. and you can buy Campbellian uh, stories, and you, can, and you can still write in every one of those genres. And I think it's important for writers to be familiar with our roots, our history, our origins. Well, see, what it is is our, our, all of that history of science fiction is the toolkit yes. from which every yes. writer can draw at any time. And you can still write stories that might be reminiscent of James Blish. Mm -hmm. uh, you can still write stories that might be reminiscent of Lee Brackett. I'm crazy and, about Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore. Yeah, and, and, and when you find those favorites, and it's, by the way, it's also okay for writers to hate anybody anytime, too. True. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as you decide you're a writer, you're the peer of all the other writers. So if you decide you detest Dune, it means you're an idiot, but it also uh, <laughs> uh, means that, that you're not going to be writing imitation Herbert. You're going to mm -hmm. find something else to write. And mm -hmm. sometimes what you want to do is you aspire to be as clear as Asimov. What a noble aspiration for mm -hmm. the supreme stylist of American prose fiction. Uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that, that it makes science fiction so rich, is that we, our old fiction is not dead. Right, and, and a new writer is free to uh, borrow, be influenced by... Steal, uh, steal, come on. Just steal, say steal it. is what I meant. I Certainly I do it myself a lot. Um, from a very broad spectrum, I've stolen uh, from, uh, just thinking of one of my books in particular, uh, Lovecraft, Michael Moorcock, and Robert Heinlein. Um, and if you can combine them in one book, it's new territory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it is, as you say, having a very broad toolkit with lots of drawers and little uh, trays in it. Mm -hmm. And little tools that no one knows what they were made for. Right. <laughs> but you find a purpose, yeah. even if it's just to prop up the desk. <laughs> That's right. So um, it's always fun for me to, uh, to finish up a contest and to send in the finalist stories and to see which ones the judges are going to choose as our first, second, and third place every quarter. Um, and it, it never ceases to amaze me. Uh, to see what comes through the through the gates, because uh, as you say, uh, each of our uh, each of our finalists is influenced from so many different people in so many different ways. I got a story recently that was uh, strongly influenced by William Shakespeare, written in iambic pentameter. Um, Oh, and uh, that is a brave or stupid yeah, writer. Right. That was that was a brilliant move in this particular <laughs> case. Um, unfortunately, the judges didn't get to see that one because uh, it turned out that the uh, writer had won a previous quarter and had to pull that particular oh, story. Oh man! But um, I hope she sells it I, profitably elsewhere. I think that they will. But um, in any case, um, you know, this contest um, has gone on for 35 years, and I'm sure we'll probably go on for another 35, the way that things are going. It seems to be getting bigger and, and better with every quarter. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard endowed it originally and uh, continues to, uh, to make sure that it moves forward. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, really excited to just see what the future of the contest is in 35 years. I don't think that any one of us three will be around 35 years from now. Very unlikely. But, um, but it'll be fun to see. I have to say that uh, 
um, L. Ron Hubbard's concern for beginning writers existed, was evidenced all the way through his career. Yeah. And he was, uh, ha he had that regard for new writers from a pinnacle of achievement and success. This is not the kind of celebrity that sneers at people who are lower down the ladder. This was the kind of celebrity that was translated into leadership and the desire to help bring other people along. That's been a common thread in much of the science fiction community for a long time. Not perfect, it doesn't always happen, but uh, we help each other. We're, we don't regard each other as rivals. We understand that our competition is napping. <laughs> our competition is fixing dinner. And if we can make somebody not have dinner ready because they couldn't put down our story, we win. But it's not about me trying to outsell some other writer. Who cares? Uh, you can't control that anyway. What you can control is the ones who do pick your story, at the end, are they eager to tell their friends? And, and that's what we all aspire to. That's the reason, I think, why L. Ron Hubbard's effort here has succeeded, is that there have always been judges who have chosen the kind of story that people are eager to give to their friends. Yeah. Yeah, I think, as you say, um, it's clear that Hubbard, throughout his career, was, instead of trying to exclude competition, was trying to encourage and uh, uh, bring out uh, other good writers. All his essays on story structure, how to do suspense, how to come up with uh, ideas for stories, how to make them more convincing, uh, how to market them, how most effectively to uh, make a career of it, was deliberately um, fostering competition. Um, and then, of course, uh, the contest itself, which exists entirely to find talented but unpublished people and change them into talented published people. Uh, it's all to bring in as many great science fiction stories as is possible. And yeah, this doesn't, this isn't competition for the rest of us. It's that old uh, high tide lifts all boats cliche. Um, truism. A truism, truism. Uh, but yeah, if the field is good and prospering, so are we all. And so yeah, it is fun. It has been fun for 30 years now to, uh, participate to help uh, and exaggerate my own participation in uh, the careers of all the people that have come through this. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next installment of the Writers of the Future podcast. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy.